This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell if somebody's willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howard Ryan has been that guy, most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant, an expert witness, and he teaches state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. This podcast series will clear the air on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take you on a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his fellow crime scene experts from around the world for a first-hand, no-nonsense, ringside seat as they take you under the yellow tape. All right. I'd like to welcome everybody back to Under the Yellow Tape. uh, I'm very excited today for this episode for a number of reasons. Um, Probably the most important is I'm here with a friend of mine. And uh, I say that on the front end of this because as we go through this, you may find that statement a little bit hard to believe, but uh, it's it's true and I'm very proud of that fact. So today, um, we're going to talk about an event that happened eight years ago today. Today, we're recording this on June 12th, 2020. And eight years ago, uh, from this date, this evening, um, there was a homicide that was committed, and it was literally about a thousand feet from where we sit recording this podcast episode right now. My guest tonight is Clark Fredericks. Clark, um, Clark was arrested for the murder of Dennis Pegg. And uh, this is kind of uh, an interesting episode because I think not many people that are going to be listening to this have actually heard something like this where one of the law enforcement officers that was involved in the investigation and responsible for putting somebody in prison is sitting having an open mic conversation with the individual that was involved in the homicide. So, Clark, thanks for being here. My pleasure, Howie, or should I say my pleasure, buddy? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's remarkable. It uh, is. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable that we're, we're doing this on this date and uh, where we're doing it so close to where it happened. I have to admit, uh, full disclosure, when we set this up to do this, you know, I called him on the phone. I said, hey, man, let's sit down and, and talk about this event. Uh, I did not look at the date. This no, was not, this was not intentional. No. And, and we're going to have a little bit of a conversation as we move along here about things happening for a reason and kind of weird how uh, we talked before we, we started recording about how, you know, holy cow, man, this is, this is the date. And here we are. Without having planned that, here we are. Uh, I'll give you a little backstory um, about my role in this, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open it up to Clark, and we're going to discuss some things in in his life that you may find pretty mind-blowing. Now, Clark and I both do some public speaking. Uh, We uh, are both speak for a company called Elite Speakers International, and um, we've spoken together on a a topic which we're going to dive into pretty pretty hard here in a minute. And uh, 
it's kind of a an interesting thing. His message, every time we speak together and I hear his message and I hear his story, I sit down and I just listen because I'm still, I'm a little awestruck. I've been doing this for over 30 years. I'm not awestruck by too many things, but this story is pretty mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing that I'm alive. Oh man, you're not kidding. Dude. It's mind-blowing that I'm sane. Yeah. It's mind-blowing that you and I are best friends. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. It is nuts. I, I, I shake my head and I say, I don't know how we got here, but I'm glad we're here. So uh, June 12th, 2012, I'm just going to say it. You, you committed a murder. I did. And um, what we really need to talk about today is why it happened, what led up to it, and then what has happened since then. Because it's not one part of this story that's amazing. It's really, man, it's the whole thing that just is like, you're on the edge of your seat listening. So why don't you do me a favor? Take me back to your childhood and and how you knew this individual. Yeah, I mean, we are, your office is adjacent to the Stillwater Elementary School, and that's where I went to school as a child. And they had, um, the Boy Scouts used to have their meetings in the basement of the school. And I had an older brother who, and an older next door neighbor who were six years older than me. And, and they were in the scouts and their scoutmaster was this gentleman, Dennis Pegg. And he befriended our family. And when I say befriended, he became an extension of our family. And from my earliest recollection, this guy was always around. And I have to tell you, I idolized this guy. Next to my father, he's who I looked up to the most. Because not only was he the scoutmaster, Howie, he was in law enforcement, and he was a lieutenant in the sheriff's department working at the county jail. And I grew up in a lake community in Stillwater, New Jersey, called Palmskill Lake. And back in the uh, 70s, you know, there, there was no helicopter parents. As soon as you could ride your bike, you were told to be gone and be back at dinner. And that's what I did. You know, we would spend the whole day down at the lake, you know, skipping rocks, fishing, swimming, playing basketball, jungle gym, tennis, everything. And uh, that happened also to be Dennis Pegg's trolling ground. Um, Dennis Pegg. My family took him in as one of their own. My parents owned a restaurant back then, and my father put on big Sunday night dinners. Dennis would always come over for Sunday night dinner, laugh and joke and drink wine and tell stories about beating inmates at the jail. He would come over for Christmas with gifts for us all, spend Thanksgiving with us. We had uh, 22 acres of prime hunting land. He would hunt on our land. And one time he was involved in a serious car crash and my mother insisted that he recuperate out of our house so she could feed him, bathe him. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that always gets, that always gets everybody when I say that. It's like inviting the wolf into the hen house. Yeah, it literally was. And, uh, you know, so she could mend him back to health. And all that guy did was view us as sheep. You know, <laughs> we were the suckers. 
taking this animal in as so many other people were. But yeah. as a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old, I mean, it, you, you didn't, yeah. obviously didn't see it that way. It was... No. I, I, he, he had a badge. He had a gun. He was a big hulking dude. He was cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I look back on it, and his first physical interaction with me was literally four months after I had open-heart surgery. I was born with a hole in my heart, and I had to have open-heart surgery to repair this hole in my heart. And I'm recuperating at home uh, on a hot summer day. I'm seven years old. And my family's in the backyard, all, all, all my family. And I, I'm watching TV with a glass of iced tea. And it's right by the front door. And there's a knock on the door, and it's Dennis Pegg. And I let him in. And I was so excited to see him. And he's like, oh, let's sit down for a minute, little buddy. I was his little buddy. And uh, he asked where everybody was, and I told them. And uh, my parents back then were so proud that I survived this operation. They used to have their friends pay me a quarter for lifting up my shirt and showing them my open-heart surgery scar. And one of the people I showed it to was Dennis Pegg. And he said, hey, I got a quarter for you. Why don't you show me your scar? I was like, sure, Den. So I show him with my shirt. And he's like, I've never seen a scar so raised up like yours. I have keloid condition. So my scar is raised up. He's like, how about I give you a dollar if you let me feel your scar? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I how, old were, how old were you? I'm seven. Time? Seven, yeah. Just four months removed from this life or death operation. Right. And I have no reason to believe that this guy would have any ulterior motives. Sure. So he's got taking his big meaty fingers and rubbing them up and down my scar. And then he goes below my scar, below my belly button to my like pant line. And he's pushing in on my, on my lower abdomen. He's asking me if it's sore from the operation. And I'm like, no, not at all. And he did that for a minute. And then he's like, okay. And, he's, and from this point forward, everything became a secret between us. This was a test. And he's like, this is our little secret. If you can't keep a secret about what, what just happened, then we can't be friends. And I'm like, I can keep a secret then. He's like, you have to promise me. The and grooming like, the grooming begins. The grooming begins. And I'm sure he had, if I, if I went running to my parents and said, oh, Dennis was just touching my scar. I'm sure he already had something, you know, a line he would use, as I'm sure he did for every other thing that he said has to be a secret. And how he would, you know, I, I say in my speeches, unfortunately, I was a great secret keeper. And I kept that secret, and I kept all the other ones that he asked me to keep. And uh, those secrets ended up destroying my life. Um, you know, things progressed on. He did everything out of the watchful eye of my parents. As I say, he, his trolling ground was down at the lake community where we lived. And it wasn't just me. Uh, you know, he would spend hours with all the young boys down there fishing and talking to us. And nine years old, he's inviting me into his pickup truck to split a six-pack of beer with him. Nine. nine. Yeah. I mean, you know, picture a little nine-year-old, how small they are. Again, secret. Yeah. And this was our secret. And, and, you know, it's like, you know, a, a pedophile, you know, like, 
all right, you, you introduce touching, you introduce alcohol, you introduce pornography. And you introduce trust. Trust. He built this us against them. It's me and you. You know, we're a, we're a team, you know. And when you're younger, you always want to feel older, you know. So he brings you up to that, his level. A rite of passage type thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, he, he, he brought uh, Polaroid pictures to show me that he says his friend found in a house he just bought. And it was all close-ups of penises. And I'm like, Dennis, where's all the women? I thought I was going to get to see, um, I'm, you know, nine, 10 years old. I'm excited to see some naked breasts. And he's like, oh, those were, those were in the other drawer at the house he just bought. I'll bring those next time. You know, I guess he wanted to gauge my reaction. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, to introduce uh, you know, that it was acceptable, I guess. He's trying to make me, you know, that it's not a big deal to see penises and stuff. Right. You know, trying to normalize it is what I'm, I'm getting. Mm-hmm. And uh, things progress from there, um, you know, to wrestling matches, to him performing oral sex on me. And at age 12, he had an elaborate scheme planned out. It brought me to his house, which is literally a thousand feet from here. His house overlooked the elementary school, you know, which is in itself creepy enough. And I'm in his house and he's giving me tumblers of blackberry brandy at age 12, beers, telling me to chug the brandy. I'm bombed. And it, it results in him raping me. And he just physically grabbed you. Through this elaborate story scheme he had, we ended up in his bed. And, and as soon as I walked in his house, some, something was off because his house was a million degrees that day, way hotter than it should have been. And I, I'm questioning if he didn't have the heat on in his house that day. And on the bed, it's so hot in here. Let's just take our clothes off, you know, down to the underwear. Then he slips the underwear off. Then he's behind me within, got me in a bear hug behind me. And he starts raping me and I'm screaming out and I'm crying and I'm wondering where my God is. I was an altar boy in the Episcopal church and there was no God hearing my screams or if there was, he wasn't coming to save me. Dennis had a coon dog, which is a type of dog, that, you know, in this area, popular. And his dog heard my screams and it started howling and wouldn't stop howling. And when Dennis got done with me, cleaned me up, sat me down at his kitchen table, gave me another beer and brought his dog in from the little screened in area. And told me, I want to show you what happens when you, do, when you can't keep your mouth shut. And he beat his dog unconscious in front of me. Whether he killed it or it was just unconscious, I have no idea. And to me, that was worse than getting raped. Because I was responsible for that dog's yelling because of my cries. And that, that haunted me. And from that point forward, my life you know, had taken a left turn. Yeah. 
and it took a left turn for decades. And I'm just starting to write the ship now. You know, um, <clears throat> when I, I was, as some of you know, I was employed by the state police at the time here. And uh, through the years prior to this, well, prior to the June 12th of 2012, there was always talk of Dennis Pegg. And I know that there was a detective from the state police many years ago before my time who tried to make the case on him. And for whatever reason, it didn't happen. And a lot of the talk was the prosecuting attorney's office at the time didn't think there was enough or wouldn't pursue it. I don't really know the answer to that because it was actually before my time. But the talk never went away. It was always here. It was, oh, oh yeah, he's that guy, that weird guy. Um, <clears throat> it was always that, hey, man, you know, is he gay? Is he like kids? Is he a kitty toucher? You know, all, all the, 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 the chatter was going around town. And I can, from personal experience before the incident, I could tell you there was a local restaurant that I used to go into quite a bit. And from time to time, you know, there was always guys from different police agencies that would stop in, whether on duty or off, and they'd sit down and have breakfast. You know, you'd have a plate of eggs or something like that. And it was a diner, the counter. You know where I'm talking about. Yeah. And uh, every once in a while, enough actually that I remember it, he would walk in. And he would either walk in by himself or with a young boy, young man, maybe adolescent. Uh, and he would always walk over to a corner booth. And what I always found odd about it, and for those of you out there that are maybe listening to this, and you're, you're in law enforcement, you're going you're gonna to understand what I say. If you're a, if you're a first responder in any way, you're going to understand what I say. Cops talk to cops. You walk into a diner, a restaurant, a bar, a liquor store, I don't care. And there's five other guys that, as we say, are on the job. You know, it's always, hey, man, what's up? You've been busy? How's it going? Hey, blah, 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 blah. You know, maybe stay safe. Talk to you later. There's, there's a cordial, you know, back and forth. But he never did. And I remember saying to the guy that owned the restaurant one time, hey, what's up with this guy? And he says, oh, no, Denny, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. I said, dude, I'm not, I don't know what it is. But there's something weird about it. He goes, why would you say that? I said, because you know what? There's five cops sitting at this counter right now. Two of them are in uniform. Three of them are off duty. But he knows everybody's a cop. And he turned and he glanced away. And he purposely avoided us and walked over to that corner. And he does it every time. I don't understand. I go, it just doesn't make sense. And when you do this job for a living, you notice little things. And other people notice them too. But one of the things you say to yourself is, that's not right. Something's not right with that. I don't know what it is, but something is weird. And I always remember that. And I always called him the weird guy from the diner, right? <laughs> you know, and uh, that, that came back actually the day of the 12th, my, my comment of the weird guy at the diner. Uh, so he, there, there had been talk. And, and Howie, in, in my discovery, you know, after my arrest, they uncovered three cases where he was, where charges were filed. All three cases, the charges were eventually dropped. Two, two were from, well, all three were Boy Scouts. Two were from Boy Scouts that went on weekend jamborees with him and came home with hickeys all over their body going down below their belt line. And the parents 
saw their sons with these hickeys going below their belt line. I'm like, what are those marks? And bravely, these kids told what it was. In one case, the mother took her son to the state police, filed charges, and the father the next day went to the state police and didn't want his son labeled gay and pulled the charges. That's a sad, a familiar sad story, that part where people have that stigma and they want to avoid that. Yeah. And, and you know, and the, uh, the, the third case was, was from a young boy in Stillwater. He was in my grade. He was a Boy Scout also. And uh, he, you know, molested and raped him. And this boy and his mother filed charges. His mother happened to work at the local Dunkin' Donuts on the night shift. And Dennis would get out of the jail and go sit alone during the midnight hours with her at this Dunkin' Donuts and threaten her life, threaten her son's life if they didn't pull the charges. Yeah. And they eventually did. Yeah. Intimidation. Yeah. Well, since then, um, I want to get into a little bit too of the path of destruction that he left. You just touched on it right now. And I can speak from the investigative side a little bit here where there was more than a handful as after the, after the homicide and the investigation investigation really started to unfold. People came forward. Um, there was, there was a, uh, a kind of a rush on people talking about it. I can, I can tell you <laughs> one of the things that I found odd was within one week of your arrest, I started seeing bumper stickers all over the county, free Clark. I can tell you in 30 years of doing this, I've never seen that ever. I've never seen anything like that. Um, but it also goes to show you that the word was out about him and people understood why all this happened. And, uh, but the path of destruction, and you can speak to it probably better than I can, because unfortunately, you know some of these people. And we even had some suicides yeah. that we've attributed to uh, his behavior and what he did to some, some, some young men in the area. Yeah. And you know some of them. Yeah, I mean, one of them, you know, as I, I mentioned early in this uh, interview, is that my brother and my next-door neighbor were six years older than me, and they from their involvement in the scouts, he befriended our family. That neighbor put a shotgun in his mouth at age 22 and blew his head off. Yeah. And my brother and I found him um, after his sister came screaming bloody murder to our house in the middle of the winter. And, um, and this is a kid you grew up with, you were friends with. Yeah, he was like a brother to me, you know? He and my brother were inseparable. Yeah. And, and you, you know, after I was arrested, uh, one of Dennis Pegg's own relatives committed suicide about a year after my arrest. And, and the prosecutor says they found sexually provocative photos of, of that relative on his computer. Yeah. You know, so. I don't remember that. And, and you know of other cases that you, you've relayed to me. You know, there's, a, without even, you know, you, 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 you it's it's tough to you know talk to the dead now, but without without getting the dead to speak, you you can probably put your hand on easily four or five. You said, yeah, and I'm sure there's a lot more. There is, and you know one of the things I want people to understand, one of the reasons we're doing this 
and talking about this. And I, I got to be honest with you, man. Having you be so open about it and, and, and talk about such a horrible point in your life, but be so free with it, you're saving lives. And we're going to talk about that in, 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 as we go on here. But one of the things I want to talk about is, you know, what you mentioned about the parent that didn't want their kid to be labeled. When you have a sexual predator like this, the path of destruction that they leave behind them can be huge. And it can affect entire communities, right. not just an individual child or a family, it's communities. And, you know, the police, they can, they can get these people, but they need, they're going to need help. I mean, it's, it's, the laws are designed to protect what they say, the innocent, but oftentimes they protect the guilty. And Dennis Pegg was a classic example of, he was a hunter of children. I mean, that's what he did. And I, and I don't want anybody to take this the wrong way. He was good at it. Right. He was smart enough and, and uh, conniving enough and cunning enough to get away with it for many, many years, whether it was force, intimidation, whatever it may be, or befriending so many people that they wouldn't believe he would do something like that. So in your communities, anybody that's listening to this, if you hear of this, understand it's just not that one person you may have heard of because they don't just do this to one person. No. They, they, they are, uh, their, their reach left and right is pretty far. And, uh, you may know other people in that community that may have been affected. So I, my, my, my thing is people act, act, speak out because it's the only way you're going to stop. You're going to save a kid because not just the trauma that you went through talking about this kid putting a gun in his mouth and other people putting a rope around their neck. Right. This is, we can't, we, we have to be better than this. We have to stop this kind of crap. And when it, when it does occur, and it does, but going back in time in history, this happens, we have to hunt them and bring, and bring it to an end. I mean, it's just one way or another. It's got to stop. Now, into your teen years, let's go, let's go there a little bit. Because I'm, this is the part where, like in the beginning where you said, I can't believe I'm still alive. <laughs> when you really started to go off the rails, it's just, go ahead, man, lay that well, out. Well, I mean, I went off the rails you know, I, I say in my speeches how I eroded all my boundaries. I started eroding my boundaries almost immediately after that he raped me. And I was uh, in seventh grade, 12 years old, and I began smoking marijuana on a weekly basis because my mind told me that talking about what happened is equal to reliving it, and we're not going to relive it. And I have all these things swirling inside my mind and I need to quiet my mind down. So I didn't have access to alcohol, but you can find access to marijuana. And, and I, I started riding dirt bikes with some older kids in the lake and they smoked marijuana. And that was my, my drug to get my thoughts to keep me from maybe killing myself, you know? Let me ask you something. Yeah. It's a tough question. Did you think about killing yourself? I, I, I've fantasized about it over the years. Yeah. You know, it's been a fantasy. Um, it didn't become a reality until I was arrested. Right. And then I wanted to, I wanted to end my life. Yeah. You know? But it was, it was just a fantasy throughout my, throughout my uh, adult life. So the drug started junior high. Well, yeah, I mean, marijuana, yeah, started, you know, seventh, eighth grade. Uh, when, when I went into high school, 
back back then there was paper licenses with no picture on. Them. Yeah. My brother gave me his paper license, which was expired, and he had to get a new one. And they didn't, they didn't care back then. Fudge the numbers, and you're good to go. So I'm a freshman going into bar, you know the, the local bars around here. You know you know which ones they were. <laughs> and uh, drinking age was 18 back then. Anyway, it wasn't 21. So the guys in high school, my brother, you know they're they're drinking. They're going to football practice and then going to the bar for shots after football practice. And so I would go in with him to some of these bars and they just, he would vouch for me. You know, yeah, it's fine. He's good. Leave him alone. <laughs> you know? And so, uh, you know, I got his paper license and, you know, so now I, I switched to alcohol as my go-to thing. Uh, and to say I was a functioning drunk in high school might be pushing it, but I drank, a lot. I drank heavily. And, uh, you know, I'm coming into school drunk, getting suspended. I'm getting caught on class trips drinking. <laughs> I abandoned sports. I abandoned my studies. I was a smart dude. And I was just like, I couldn't apply myself to anything anymore other than partying. Um, I would get C's, maybe an occasional B. You know, that was fine for me. Um, what was torturous was my mother worked in the library at the high school. And I had to go crank on this fake happy smile. I, was, I wasn't one of these little kids who hid in the shadows. I was an outgoing dude who my teachers loved, popular with my classmates, and my mother's working in the library, you know? And, uh, uh, you know, so I, I, I've led this exhausting life because... You have two faces, and when there's a huge discrepancy between your two faces, the face behind closed doors and the face you show the world, it's exhausting. Sure. And I had the hugest of discrepancies. So I, I, I'm a, a, a big drinker in high school. After I graduated, I get a drunk driving in that summer before I go off to college. I go off to college, and I realize pretty quickly that I have to apply myself. I didn't, I didn't feel like coming, rushing back here by flunking out. So I had college down to a science. I was an excellent student. I got great grades. I could study four nights out of the week and be a complete blackout drunk the other three nights. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'm a blackout drunk. I you, could, you could write a book just on that. Half the college kids <laughs> in this country, by the way, would probably buy that on a download on Audible. Oh, if, I, if I just recited all my drunken stories, yeah. Uh, yeah sure. Who is this guy, man? He's got it. He figured it out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm going to college in the 80s where cocaine was at its greatest height. And I tried cocaine for the first time, and I absolutely loved it. You know, it, it, it took away all my insecurities. It made me feel strong and powerful and not this little scared, weak child inside that I carried around with me. And, uh, you know, I tried other drugs, you know, acid, mushrooms, you know. Uh, we had pharmacy students that lived below us and they stole cases of amyl nitrates. And we would have parties and make everybody do amyl nitrates. And, and we, we were, you know, me and my roommates were the heavy drinkers in, in, in Northeastern University up in Boston. We'd walk into parties and friends would be there, and people would, as soon as we would walk in, would go, 
look out for these guys. They drink a lot. <laughs> you know? So it just, it just was who, who I was, you know? And I, did I apply what happened to me as to how I was living? No. But there was something that made me live that way without me even recognizing what it was. I graduate college and just as I couldn't apply myself to sports or grades, I couldn't apply myself to a career. I couldn't apply myself to relationships. I felt trapped if I was in a long-term relationship or a long-term career. And feeling trapped is how I felt at Dennis Pegg's house when he would get me there. Let me ask you something. Through college, through all these years that you're talking about, we're going to get into all some of the stuff that happened after college too, because it, it continues, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, how often did you think of it? Um, would it creep into your mind from time to time? Just r rarely, you know, something may trigger it. Um, and my therapist, the first therapist I, I dealt with, uh, she asked me, Clark, in your twenties and thirties, did you dwell on Dennis Pegg much? And I had to sit and think for a second. I'm like, no. And she goes, that's normal. Yeah. You know, because those, those years you're living life, you're either diving into a career, you're, you're partying, you're, you know, for me, womanizing was, was in my twenties is all I cared about. My mind told me you sleep in enough women, you can put that crap behind you. And, uh, you know, it, it didn't work, obviously it, it, you know, left me feeling empty. And, and one thing, you know, that, that haunted me, Howie, which, uh, you know, I told, I said, I wanted to bring up was. In college, I met the love of my life, mm -hmm. um, this girl, Lisa, and we were perfect for each other. And, and I could experience love, but I couldn't experience intimacy. And you need to be able to be intimate to, mm -hmm. to have love. And we dated for off and on for six years. After graduation, we talked about marriage and kids and careers. And uh, she finally pinned me down, like, what are we doing? You know, I feel like we're just wasting time. Let's get going. And uh, I told her I couldn't do it. And she's like, what do you mean you can't do it? I said, I can't get married anymore. And uh, we walked away from each other. And it's haunted me. And it's haunted me my whole life. She's been itching the back of my head for decades. And uh, it's just another long line of regrets that I had in life. You know? Um, hmm. When, uh, so when you got out, you... you where did you work? You had a, you had a good job. Yeah, I mean, when I was when I was younger, I worked on Wall Street for a few years. Um, this is a thing that people got to listen to because this is like, you know, sometimes you hear like, oh, somebody had an issue in their life and they became a drug addict and this and that. They're a real shit show train wreck. You you were not. I mean, you were, but but you were still getting it done. You yeah, were living a, a life, a professional right. life that other people would love to have. Exactly. You know, when I when I got out of college, my father put up six figures for me to get into a uh, partnership with a retired state trooper who he was best friends with and me. So that's what I did out of college is I, I formed a partnership with this state trooper in tire, tire retreading business. I didn't even know that. Yeah. 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 That's something. Yeah. I never really shared that with you, but yeah, you know, um, and you know, you know, that's, an, that's another thing is, is what's going on now in the world with, with, you know, the cops being vilified. I was raped by law enforcement. And yet I didn't go through the rest of my life 
looking at every law enforcement officer as the devil. Right. It's a good point. You, you have to, yeah, you have in it. You know, there's people who may never have been abused by a, a an officer, and yet they're calling for that officer's head. They're calling for the defunding. But here, I was raped by by somebody in law enforcement, and yet all throughout my life, I've been friends with cops. Yeah, you know, you have to take every in, every person as as an individual. You know, you can't group a whole mass together. Right. No, I agree. I agree. Um. So, yeah, I, I was in the tire retread business w- with this retired state trooper. Uh, I worked on Wall Street. Then my brother had a uh, tire business that was very successful, a retail business. And he wanted to get into the tire retreading end of it and asked me to come join him so we could open up a retread shop, which we did. So Now, throughout all of this, still drinking, still drugs. Yeah, I mean, through my 20s, as I said, I drank heavily, but it was just chasing women. What was the turning point where that ramped up? Um, Was there a trigger? Well, was there a time? Was it? Well, I mean, ramp. I mean, I always had the pedal to the metal. You know, I I was going full steam 20s When, when nonstop sleeping with women wasn't satisfying to me anymore. I found my next high with gambling. And uh, I proceeded, you know, over the, over the next six, seven years to just gamble every weekend in casinos. And I, I was very successful at times. You know, I won six figures at times. I lost big. But I did, overall, I did pretty good. And it's like any other drug, you need more and more and more of it as time goes on. And I couldn't wait for the weekends anymore to gamble, to go to a casino. So I start sports betting with the mob every night. And within six months, I'm bankrupt. And not only am I bankrupt, but I'm in debt to the mob for close to six figures. And you do not want to get in debt to the mob for six figures. I get a call from the FBI one day at my shop telling me they need to meet with me. They wouldn't tell me why. I'm wondering, could this be some drug thing? Uh, I hadn't, uh, my mind's going in a million different directions. I had no idea why they were meeting me, but they set a date for two days later. <laughs> but you figured I got a lot of reasons. They oh, I, got, I got a ton of reasons it could be. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, which one did they pick? You know? And uh, it turns out the uh, FBI agent came to the shop to say they had a confidential informant inside one of the major crime families. And this informant relayed to them that a hit had been put out on my life for my gambling debt. And they wanted to notify me about it. Yeah. You know, so that was my life. You know, this is how I'm living. You know, there's no stress there. <laughs> those were the worst. Those, th- those gambling years were the worst years of my life. You know, I had tons of money. I had, a, I had a briefcase with a couple hundred thousand in it at all times. Just kind of on the side. Yeah. It, and all it did was, because I wasn't happy inside, it didn't really relate to happiness on the outside. It just allowed me to live a more decadent lifestyle. Um, and party a little harder. Yeah, exactly. And party harder, you know. So so when, it, when I crashed and had to declare bankruptcy and had the FBI come to me, you know, Luckily, I'm still alive from that, you know, and uh, 
So I go into my 40s now, and I just, I, I hit the skids with depression. And this is where things amp up as far as the drug use. And, uh, and, and again, Howie, I mentioned my boundaries eroding. You know, like, I would think a boundary for everybody would not be getting in debt to the mob for six figures. It might be, might be a good yeah. boundary. <laughs> so I'm just blowing through boundaries. And I'm, I'm, I'm in my 40s, and abuse victims suffer from PTSD. Sure. I, I found this out afterwards. You know well about PTSD sure. from your line of work. Mm -hmm. And uh, I fall into this deep depression. Just getting out of bed in the morning is it's a, a chore. I have to talk to myself like a baby to get myself out of bed. To get to work every day. I'm just dreading work. Dreading going to work. So my mind tells me, well, let's replace our coffee in the coffee mug with wine. This is the first thing in the morning. Yeah. So driving to work at seven in the morning instead of coffee, I put wine in. Again, blowing through my boundaries. Not knowing how to deal with this depression I'm in. And never confronting pain. If you run from pain your whole life, it affects how you deal with everything. Sure. And I just, I didn't have any coping skills to deal with anything. Did you ever at any time say to yourself, oh man, I need help. I got to go talk to somebody or, or were you just running at such an altitude that you just <laughs> said, screw it, man, I'm going to ride this wave out and see what happens. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean... I had no idea how it would end. Like I, I didn't have. But you wanted to make it. Glorious. I didn't have the the pull the pull cord to to eject you know out of the life I was in. I just didn't know how to do it. Right. And you know, you just get caught up in it. So, so I'm drinking wine, going to work, and then I'm just so exhausted. Depression makes you exhausted. Doing, you know, just scratching your nose is a chore. You know, so my mind tells me, hey, that cocaine back in our 20s made us feel like Superman. You know, we can just do a couple of bumps to get us through our, our busy day at the tire shop. So, again, another boundary. Like, if I did coke, I wasn't, drugs didn't have a hold of me going up to this point. If I did it, it was on a weekend, you know, get a gram of coke, go out to a bar, whatever. You know, have some fun. But now, I start doing coke during the week. This is just to get through the day. This now. is just get to through the day because of my depression and my lethargy. I was lethargic, so I'm drinking now wine at seven in the morning. I'm I'm doing bumps of coke at nine in the morning throughout the day. A couple here and there. I'm gonna say you you were changing a shitload of tires. <laughs> <laughs> Your tire productivity must have gone way up. <laughs> Uh, so one of the reasons why I love you. We can laugh about the dark stuff humor. Now. Yeah. <laughs> and also during this time, because of, you know, I worked on backhoe tires, loader tires, truck tires. I herniated a disc and I went and saw a doctor. Oh, there you go. Pain management now. Here. Ah, here we go. Like, you know, I go in and he gives me 30 Vicodins. And I had never taken Vicodins in my life. And Howie, I felt like Superman on these things. I felt like, 18 year old Clark where I could do anything 
physical. And I, it increased my work productivity. You talk about increasing your work productivity. Those pain pills did it. And I ate these 30 pills like in three, four days, and I called the doctor up. Doc, those things work miracles. You got to get me some more. He's like, wow, that was a little fast there, dude. He goes, I'll give you 10 more. 10 more. That simply was unacceptable to me. My mind said, that's not going to work. And thus began gathering pain pills like a squirrel gathers nuts. Did you start to doctor shop? Uh, no, no, I didn't go to other doctors. I just, I, I knew people, you know, and I just like. I got a guy. So instead of, you know, Coke or marijuana, like, hey, you, know, you get, can you get a hold of pain pills? And I would just ask anybody and everybody that I knew either drank or partied or whatever. And before you know it, I got as many pills as I want coming. And thus began a six-year-long pain pill addiction. And this is how I'm living for a few years. Pain pills, some Coke, popping some Xanax here and there, and drinking. And I'm going to work every day. And I'm functioning. I'm going out with friends. I'm dating. Having sex still. Changing every, tires. Changing tires. So yeah, this is, I'm just, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm making it work somehow. I was, I was an animal. Any thought during any of that where you're saying to yourself, man, I'm, this is going to crash. This, this train's coming off the tracks. Or, um, or you just, no. No, not really, to be honest just with you. Just charging ahead. Yeah, just full steam ahead, man. You know, I, I, after one of my successful trips to the casino, um, on the way home with tens and tens and thousands of dollars on me, I stop at a Harley-Davidson dealership and buy a bike. Plopped down 21000 in cash. And uh, I start, you know, I'm riding with guys, you know, you know, who like to party, go to strip bars. And, you know, so that was the lifestyle I was in. Work hard. Play harder. Play harder, get some Coke, go to the strip joints, ride like an animal, you know, flying down the highway, drunk high, you know. 100 plus miles per hour. That's how we were living. In hindsight, you probably look back now and said, how many times you, you look back and say, there's 50, 100 times I should have been dead. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I drove. <laughs> you know, when I bought that bike, I told myself, we're not going to drive drunk on this. Uh, that lasted for like the first time when I hooked up with guys to go out for a ride and we stop at bars. And then, well, that just went flying out the door. Yeah. You know, like I said, my, I had my, I had I couldn't I couldn't keep a boundary where I said it. I right. just, just I blew right through all my boundaries. And uh so that's you know, I'm living that hard lifestyle for a few years leading up to June of two thousand and twelve. Well tell me <clears throat> the trigger point. We've talked about this, but share the trigger point beforehand. Yeah. Where where you Yeah, I I'm in this depression. I'm abusing some substances, and I see Dennis Pegg in a in a deli one day after work. I'm I'm in there getting a coffee. You're and in he, your forties at this point. Yeah, and he comes in, and now you Stillwater's a small town. Sure, it's not like for thirty plus years I never saw him, but it had been at least ten years since I saw him. And he comes in that deli and sees me and yells out to me like we're best friends in the world. And I can tell he's going to come make his way to me. 
And trailing in right behind him is a boy about the age he raped me at. And that boy is calling him the same nickname that Dennis used to insist I call him. You know, this buddy-buddy thing of ours where it's us against the world. You know, you all my close friends call me this. You're going to start calling me this. Well, that kid says the name. You got to be thinking to yourself, all these years have gone by between this little boy that I'm looking at now and me when I was that age. How many between? Right. How many between? Nothing's changed. No, he's got the same MO. And as you said, you would, there was always stuff swirling. It's not like I didn't hear stuff swirling too. Yeah. You know, um, it seems that everybody in our town has stories about Dennis and young boys. Like he must have a thousand nephews because everybody's like, yeah, he introduced that, uh, this boy as his nephew. Right. And it wasn't the same boy. You know, it's a million different boys. Yeah. Um, how'd so you, how did you react? I, I started going into a complete panic attack. And when I, when I was younger and he would touch me, I froze. And it was like I was paralyzed. And my mind just was in such an overdrive that my limbs stiffened. My heart's pounding. I can't breathe. And I froze. And didn't run away, didn't fight. And that, that messes with you when something happens so horrible to you as a young boy and you freeze and then you're a, a grown man and you're built and you work out. And it just, the dichotomy between the young Clark and the older Clark, it would just toy, it would just, you know, it twists your brain a little. Yeah. You know, it's just, you can't get your your head around it, how you, you froze like that. And I feel myself as a grown man now freezing in that deli. Like he still has control of it. Absolutely had control of me. Yeah. And I run out of there. I run, we, we bump shoulders going by. I run out of there. I hop in my truck. I, I, I spit gravel out of the parking lot. I go down the road. I'm spitting on my truck floor. I'm punching my steering wheel. I'm yelling curses. And from that point forward, that's where I fell into the hole. I was abusing drugs up to that point. But from that point forward, less than two months later, I walked out of the family business I was in with my brother. I could no longer force myself to, to swing my legs out of bed in the morning and pour my wine and do a bump to go to work anymore. Two that, months That less, wasn't even working anymore. No. Two months later, I just couldn't do it anymore. I, this guy was in the forefront of my mind, seeing that boy, seeing him, hearing him call that name out is just playing in my mind. And then it's, it, and then I'm just re reciting things like you said, like how many, how many other Clarks have there been? It's just tormenting me. And I just, I couldn't function in life. And again, having no coping skills, never addressing my pain. I didn't know what to do after I walked out of my brother's business other than dive headfirst into drugs. So the, the, the gram of Coke a week, which is just getting me through the week, I'm now buying ounce of Coke a week. The pain pills, when they ran low, I'm now substituting heroin. The couple of Xanax here and there are now every day 8 to 12 Xanax a day because of all the Coke I'm doing. I'm literally snorting coke around the clock 
and going week after week, month after month with single digit hours of sleep for a week. And I wore it like a, you know, you asked me, you know, did I have an exit strategy? No, I wore it like a badge of courage, a badge of honor that I could live like this and function and have a girlfriend and go out with my friends and keep everybody fooled and not never be sleeping. Right. I was like a zombie though, you know, uh, and it just progressed and progressed and progressed and doing, you know, the pain pills, the heroin, the cocaine, the ounces, the Xanax. And I always had a high consumption ability of alcohol. I could always drink a ton. Now with all with the Coke I'm doing, the alcohol was just off the charts how much I could drink. And that was basically from the first of the year. You know, I don't want people to think I was putting all these substances in for years again now. No. It was basically from the first of the year to, to June. And I knew during those six months that I was pushing the boundaries. I knew that my life expectancy couldn't go on much longer. Were you okay? Let me ask you something. because. I speak to uh, I speak to a lot of people in law enforcement and a lot of people in the military, and some of these guys that came home had a very interesting uh, explanation of their time, specifically in combat. I you know I will ask them a lot of different questions you know, and one of the things is you know, it was there a moment where you're really scared, and they all say the same thing, and it's really kind of a uh, an eye opening statement. They say no. Once you accept that you're going to die, you're okay. Did you feel anything like that? Yeah, I mean, there were some nights, you know, where I were, you know, like I did way too much coke at once. I mean, you're a kid. You're a kid at seven years old, six years old, had heart surgery. Yeah, and you're you're just slamming that coke down. Your heart rate had to be yeah. And then I'm I'm eat, I'm eating Xanax and chasing it with alcohol because I did too much Coke and now I'm so messed up. I can't remember how many Xanax I just took that I overdo it with the Xanax and the vodka. And yeah. You know, it was night after night, you know, and it's, it's like you're, I was resolved that I know I can't go on much longer like this, but I didn't have an exit strategy. I was just like, whatever. So let's talk about the night of the 12th. Yeah. And specifically, the decision to go there. And then we'll stop just for a second on your way because I'm going to talk a little bit about the scene. So just tell me how you made the decision. Like w what led up to this? Well, I'd been on a three-day Coke bender going into the 12th. I passed out early morning. I didn't fall asleep. I passed out because, you know, enough substances finally closed my eyes for two hours. So I woke up and I had to go to the bathroom really bad. So I went and urinated. Before I went to the bathroom, though, I had left like a huge four-inch line of Coke on my dresser. So as soon as I got up to go to the bathroom, I saw that, grabbed a bloody $50 bill that was rolled up next to it, snorted that up, went to the bathroom, poured a cocktail, got back in bed, put the TV on, and it's the start of the Jerry Sandusky molestation trial out at Penn State. He was one of the coaches who ran a boys' camp and he was molesting the boys. And his trial was starting. And I, I saw Dennis Pegg. 
That's all I saw. I saw Dennis Pegg. I spit on my floor, cursed at the TV. I was, I held myself, hugging myself like a little child, rocking in my bed, just rocking back and forth, distraught. And I was, at this point, you know, I, I was avoiding most people, just wanting to be left alone in my house with my drugs. And a friend had wanted to go out to lunch that day, and, and, and I agreed to go because the, the walls of my room were squeezing the oxygen out. I could hardly breathe. And I went out, and I spent the rest of the day sneaking my Coke, drinking, and popping Xanax. I ran into a guy who burned me on a motorcycle deal. He was supposed to do a custom build for me. He swindled my Harley out of me. He never built the bike. Uh, you know, the whole deal cost me, you know, about $45,000. And I ran into him that night for the first time since this had all happened. And we had words in an Italian restaurant I go to a lot. I tried to get him to go out to the parking lot. He was having dinner with his family. And out of respect for them, I let it slide. And I had a friend coming to my house who I had lent some money to. And to pay back the money, he was going to power wash and, and stain the siding of my house. And he was coming that night to drop the equipment off. And it was going to start in the morning. And I, I met him at home and I told him about seeing this, you know, motorcycle dude who burned me. And all my friends knew about this guy and knew what happened. And he said to me, my friend said to me, you know, at the kitchen table over a bottle of wine, that guy's got to be number one on your hit list. And the secret I had protected all throughout my life, Howie, before I could stop the words coming out of my mouth, I said, no, he's actually number two on my hit list. The piece of garbage who raped me as a young boy is number one. And that, that was the very first time in my life I've ever revealed to anyone that I was raped. What was his reaction? He stared at me in disbelief because, you know, we were, we were cocaine buddies. We were biker buddies. We were strip joint buddies. And now I'm revealing this. And he's just like squinting at me like, are you for real, bro? I'm like, yeah, I'm for real, man. And he just started asking me questions. Who he was? Where did it happen? You know, blah, 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 blah. So I'm telling him. And I don't want to say whose idea it was, but jointly we agree to go to his house to confront him. I tell my friend that he lives literally two, three miles away, less than five-minute drive. And he's, we're like, agree to go confront him. Okay, let me ask you this. Yeah. So the two of you are probably a little banged up. Oh, yeah. All right, so... You come up with the idea to go up there. Yep. Was your original tension just to go kick his ass? You know, everybody, everybody asks. And, and, you know, you may think two dudes would sit down and plot something out, but that's, you know, that's not how it happened. It's like, let's go, let's go find him. And that was pretty much it. And, and you just take it from there. Yeah. Let's, let's go find him. Let's go confront him. Not. All right, we're going to do this, 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 this. There was no A, A to M scenario. It was just like, let's go find this piece of shit. Right. Let's go, let's go confront this motherfucker. 
Yeah. And fucking show him what 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 he did wrong isn't all right anymore. Yeah. And, and your friend was like, yeah, dude, let's do it. Let's fucking do it. Yeah. So, you know, I tell him what a, a, a gun fanatic this guy is. And, uh, it's, we, pretty, it's a pretty ballsy move. Cause you, you'd been to the house, you know, his backstory with guns. Hey. He was a firearms instructor. He taught a lot of people and he was a collector of guns. Right. So, you know, there's guns in the house. Tons of guns, handguns, rifles, bayonets, knives, every sort of weapon available. He's loaded in that house. And I tell my friend, let's take a knife each for protection. And I take, I give my friend a steak knife and I take my hunting knife, which I had since I was a young boy hunting, which for one of my Christmas gifts, Dennis bought me a, a stone and oil set for sharpening my hunting knife. And he spent hours at our house at Christmas showing me how to get the perfect blade on my hunting knife. And from that point as a young boy till now, I kept that hunting knife with a perfect blade on. And that's what I decided to take with me to his house. We hop in my buddy's van. We're driving over there. I don't recall conversation, you know, other than me telling him, take a left, take a right, take a left. We park halfway up his driveway. I'm like, let me, I go, I haven't been here in 30 plus years. I don't even know if this guy still lives here. I don't know if he has roommates. I don't know if he's still got dogs. I don't know anything. I'm like, let me just run up and see if this is even where he's still living. So I run up the driveway and his front door is open and his storm door shut. But there he is sitting there watching TV. And, and I tell everybody it was like looking in at the devil sitting in his lair. Now, before you go into what went on in the house, um, let me give just a little background of um, how we got involved. And we're going to come back to that. Um, that morning, I worked in a crime scene investigation unit. I was, uh, at the time I was a lieutenant running the unit and I had about eight, seven or eight detectives in the unit with me. And we get a, uh, our first call of the morning was somewhere in another County. We had to go down to a different call an aggravated assault on two people, possibly life threatening injuries. We also had a structure fire that night. We had a body, we had a dead body in there. We might lose these two people down in this other County. So by the time we get this call, we, this is going to be maybe our third or fourth body. We don't know of the day. And these are, and a crazy thing is they're all in rural areas. This is not like some inner city gang banging thing, which is kind of how it went. When we got a hit in a rural area, it would be a lot of stuff. And sometimes it tended to be a little weird. So I come back up to this house and the call is it's a homicide. And I remember getting to this property that you were just describing. And as I walked in, some of the other detectives and the troopers were there. Uh, and I walked over to where the body was and I kneeled down. And they didn't tell me on the phone who this was. I just kneeled down. I looked at him. And I remember saying, that's the weird guy from the restaurant. That's the guy that always walked to the corner. And as I stood up, I looked around, 
and the detectives that I work with, they all knew this already, but the one of the the attorneys, the county attorney, prosecuting attorneys, was there, which some of you around the country may find odd. New Jersey does things a little ass backwards. We have lawyers' offices that actually run criminal investigations where other states don't have that. So some of you might be scratching your head saying, what's a lawyer doing there? Well, this is the organized crime state of New Jersey. <laughs> so I remember looking at this person at that time, and he shook his head and he says, this is a tragedy. And I remember my answer was, uh, no, it's not. Now, some of you might be thinking out there, like, why would I say something like that? And we're going to do a whole episode down the line on dark humor and, and, and how it's a, a survival mechanism in this line of work. But, you know, I knew. I looked around the house. There was nothing touched. I mean, you, you do this long enough and you see what's going to happen. There was an altercation. But the altercation was right there. The altercation was him. I didn't know any of this. I didn't even really know you at that point. I knew your brother. And I, so I didn't know your involvement. Uh, but I'm saying whoever came here, came here for this man right here. For whatever reason, this isn't a home invasion. This is not a burglary. This is not a robbery. This is, this is personal. Because the injuries were also personal. And uh, we, it wasn't very long after where your name surfaced and we were heading over to your house to invite you over to the state police barracks. And uh, so I wanted to get that point out because it was really obvious to us right away that this was not your everyday event. This was not some random opera crime of opportunity. This was something happened here which and really started to peel back the layers of who this man on the floor was. And it was the beginning of opening the, the box of hell that he created throughout the County uh, and, and everything that he did. And uh, so, go, so go ahead back to when you walked up, you saw him on the couch and tell us your thoughts, what you were thinking. Or- yeah. I mean, I literally saw him as the devil saw him as just evil. I didn't see him as a person. I looked in, I saw the devil. I spit on his driveway. I gritted my teeth and I was cursing under my breath. And I... There he is. He's watching TV, enjoying life. Yeah. Right? And you know, you and I have discussed this and we're like, it's baffling. Somebody, this guy had a 45-year reign of terror raping little boys. Yeah. He was camp counselor. Got contacted by people who were in camp with him. He was Boy Scout leader. Boy Scout leader. He was a trail angel on the Appalachian Trail, bringing weary hikers back to his house for a nice hot shower and attacking them. He worked, once he retired, he worked at Stoke State Forest. I did a speech at a rehab where there was a gentleman in his 70s who was there, you know, for substance abuse or alcohol, whatever. And after I did my speech, this guy came up to me and said, I worked with Dennis Pegg at Stoke State Forest. And he would put his name down every weekend for one of our cabins that he'd be sharing it with one of his so-called nephews. And it was a different 
so-called nephew every time in these cabins. And this guy said he even went to the state police and complained. And the state police told him back then, we know all about Dennis Pegg. There's nothing we can do, though. And this guy said, I'll tell you what cabin he's going to rent next week. And you come set up a camera in there. And they said, you know, we can't do that. And he was in the Autobahn Society. And I met somebody whose son was abused by him. And on and on. He was, he was in basically every single organization you could think of. Any of your listeners want to Google Dennis Pegg obituary? You look at it and you tell me if it's not disturbing. Nobody is that good of a person to be in a thousand different organizations. A lot of those organizations with young boys. Right. Dennis Pegg was that guy. He put himself in a position every time. Yeah. You, you know, you got to have prey. You know, he's a hunter, like you said. Yeah. So I see him. I run back to, the, to my friend's van. I say he's there. He gets out of the van. We go running up there. And I looked in, and I felt myself freezing again. I felt my limbs stiffening. My heart is pounding. And before I could go into that paralyzed thing, like the last time I was at his house when I was 12 years old, I ripped open his storm door. This guy was so weird that it's 930 at night. A childhood rape victim of yours just ripped open your storm door holding a knife. And you casually look over your shoulder and say, hey, how are you? And I said, hey, how am I, motherfucker? Let me show you how I am. And I raced. It just set that that line set me off. And I raced across this floor, Howie, and a violent struggle ensued. I was slashing at him with the knife, saying to him, how does it feel touching little boys now? The attack, the fight, it's not like he just rolled over and, you know, let me do what I did. It was, it was a fight to the death for both of us. But it was quick, you know. It was... It was two, three minutes at most. And he slumped to the floor and I knelt down in front of him, stared him eye to eye. And I said, it's not so fun raping little boys now, is it? And I slit his throat. I got up from there. I walked over to the bedroom he had raped me in. You had found bloody footprints. Yeah. You questioned because nothing was taken why there was footprints to that bedroom. And I went to the bedroom he raped me in and I spit on the bed. And I walked out and my life as I knew it, the, up to 46 years was over. That life was done. Man, so uh, tell me a little bit about, I mean, after it all happened, you left and you ended up back home. The next day when we were, we were, processing that crime scene uh obviously you became a person of interest you were a suspect and um tell me about when the troopers came to your house yeah i i had injured i i had stuck the knife through my hand in the attack and i severed all the ligaments and tendons in my hand and i knew that was probably going to be my undoing 
but it never even got to that point. You know, for my name came up for various other, you know, ways, you know, which we don't have to go necessarily into right now. But I woke and my mind was telling me if we get some drugs and alcohol in our system, we can come up with a plan to get out of this, you know. And I popped some Xanax, and I went out to the kitchen to, to get a glass of wine. I poured a glass of wine, and I'm taking a sip of my wine just like knowing my life is over. Like, I just, I, I woke up knowing it was over, Howie. I already had one debilitating secret of molestation that had just destroyed my life. And it, what, do I think I'm going to go through life now with a second debilitating secret? Do I think I'm going to be able to carry murder under my belt and have a healthy, happy life with, with a white picket fence? No. I knew that day my life was over. I'm drinking. I take a sip of my wine, and I look out my kitchen window, and I see armed troopers running around my house, armed detectives from the prosecutor's office, hiding behind trees, hiding behind rock walls. And I'm like, I go, you got to be fucking kidding me already. And I can't tell you, it's tough to get into words, the feeling of your gut dropping to the floor, but my gut dropped to the floor. I'm like, I can't fucking believe they're fucking here already. I'm saying to myself. And I chug that glass of wine and I pour a second glass and I have a slider sliding door. You're thinking this may be the last one I get. Yeah. I have a sliding glass door that goes out to a deck in the back, and I, I go look out the sliding glass door panels, and there's cops hiding back out there. And I'm like, oh, man. And I'm just, I, I'm just like resigned to the, to the fact now that it's done, man. It's, it's over, brother. And out of a loudspeaker, I hear, Mr. Fredericks, come out of the house with your hands up. And I chug that second glass of wine. And as I'm walking to my front door, Howie, all I'm thinking is I want my life to be over. And I say, God, let one of these cops have an itchy trigger finger and take me down as soon as I step out on my porch. I want to I hear the crack of a gun so I'll know I'm out of my pain and out of my misery. And I, I step out onto my front porch. I got my hands out at my sides. I got my head a little tilted. My eyes are closed, and I'm just waiting waiting, waiting for that crack of a gun, hoping it'll come, and it didn't come. Instead, you guys ordered me down onto my front lawn, spread a guild. I was handcuffed and then taken away to the state police barracks. And that's kind of where I, uh, you know, where it starts off me, me and you having a conversation is there. When I come in there, uh, one of the first things, we had a few things to do that night. One, we had to go to your house. We had to finish the scene. Where, where it took place. And then there, and then there was you. And uh, I just remember opening the door to the holding cell. And I looked at you standing there, man. And I was like, I, well, let me, you know, let me go back for a second because I already knew why you did it. We all knew why you did it. And um, I, I, I wanted to explain to you what was about to happen. We were going to take your clothing 
We were going to take photos. We we're going to do a bunch of different things and processing you. And as I opened the door and I looked at you standing there, you had a look, man. I got to tell you, you had a look on your face like you just, you had a look on your face like it was over. Right. You were defeated. Yeah. And uh, I didn't even know you. And I looked at you and I'm like, oh, this guy, I don't know. I don't know if he realizes how much trouble he's in right now. And uh, I remember if you, you, I know you remember some of the conversation we had, but one of the things I said to you, and I got to be honest, I'll say this, and I've said this in some of our speeches when we get it in front of crowds. I said something to you that I've never said to anybody we ever, ever arrested in over 30 years. I said, Clark, don't say a word. And you kind of looked at me like you were banged up on drugs, but you were still sober enough to go, excuse me, what? Like, you know, and I looked at me like, and I remember you said to me, why would you tell me that? And I looked at you and I said, dude, you're in a lot of trouble. And I got you. I got you six ways from Sunday. Your blood's all over that house. So what you need to do right now is just shut up. They're going to ask you a bunch of questions. Just exercise your constitutional right to not say a word. And I knew why. And I said to you, and I want you to talk about it a little bit too. I said, you said, why would you do this? And I remember saying, because I can't look you in the face and honestly tell you, I might not have done the same thing, knowing what I know now about your childhood. Um, and uh, I also, uh, I apologized. And, you did. Uh, Go ahead, man. Tell and, me, and, tell I mean, you walked in the, that holding cell, you know, a couple of times. And, and the one time you apologized to me. And I, I said, I looked at you like cross that. I go, what the fuck are you apologizing to me for? You know, here I just almost decapitated a law enforcement officer. And you're saying, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I go, for what? And you're like, I've known about this scumbag for a long time. I've known what he was doing to young boys. And you've said this in the speeches we've done together. You, you said to me, you can't build a case, a criminal case, on rumor and innu- innuendo. You need cold, hard facts, and you, you need victims to come forward. And he goes, whatever he did to you guys to, to keep you silent worked. And we could never build a case that would last. And I apologize to you. Yeah. And I was like, you know, you, and then you walked out of the cell. And at first I was like, Wow. And then you're thinking, is this babe, good cop, bad cop? What the fuck's going on? Yeah, I thought that too. Like, you know, why is he doing this? And then as I sat there in that cell alone, I started fuming. I started getting pissed. I'm like, these guys knew, everybody knew about Dennis. The state troopers now are just telling me that they knew about him. And yet I got to be the one to throw my life away to finally put an end to this animal. 45 plus years, nobody stopped this animal. And now I got to go, I got to go do life in prison because nobody could stop them. And I got pissed. And then I was, I was just, I sat there and I'm like, fuck it, man. It's over anyway. What the hell? Yeah. And that's, you came walking in again. And that's where you saw me and could tell I had mailed it in. And you said, you know, something told you like, he might have gave up on himself, but I'm not going to give up on him yet. No, man. I Listen, I, you know, I think about what he did. And I, I got to be honest, in this full disclosure on this, I didn't know how wide the path of destruction was yet. Right. I just looked at you and I'm like, 
you know, there's a lot of people like you, you, we were talking about what's all going on right now in the media. I don't think people understand sometimes that, you know, before we go to work, man, we're just part of a family with wives and kids. And I looked at you and I said, what the, what, what, what demon is in his head? I mean, what the fuck happened to this kid growing up? I don't know, but I was not just apologizing. I was apologizing for like the profession, man. We didn't, we didn't get it done. Right. We're mission oriented people. I had, I known, and we would have been able to make a case. You can bet your ass. I would have hung his ass. That's just who we are and how we work. And the fact that we weren't able to do it. And I'm thick looking at you going, you're done. Right. And I feel bad. Right. I actually feel bad that you're standing here right now with this wicked injury in your hand. And this guy's laying dead in the house. And quite honestly, you're fucked. Right. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, but I was, and then I'm looking at your hand. I'm going, we got to, you know, you remember your hand injury. Go ahead. Talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I started as time went on, you know, I had lost a lot of blood. You know, if you see some of the, the, the crime photos, I lost a lot of blood and I was getting pretty woozy in that, that holding cell. And, and I had the, the magical duct tape that works on everything, you know, <laughs> was holding my hand together. And I ripped, I ripped the duct tape off with my teeth and, you came back in. I'm like, dude, I'm starting to fade here, man. You know, look at my wound. And you're like, wow, we got to get you an ambulance. And, you know, and what goes on now with society, one cop to another, you, you know, not everybody's out of the same mold. And you happen to be a dude that even though you experienced on a daily basis the worst and had to deal with horrific crime scenes, you kept your humanity for some reason. You didn't become one of these cops that lost touch with their humanity. And you and I have spoken since. And, and it, I, it was such a strong thing, the bond between you and I and what you did for me and just talking to me that I put it into my, my speech as one of my life lessons. And, it, and the, that life lesson is remain objective, remain open-minded, don't lose your humanity. And you told me this. You said, Clark, and this goes to all the cops around the country, around the world. Too many of my fellow officers view things as simply black and white. And that's the problem we're in now, I think, you know. And you said, I know there's a whole gray area where good people can do bad things. And that's where you fell into. And for whatever reason, the way you were talking to me, I got a sense that I could trust you. And then at this point, I had nothing to lose anyway. So I'm like, screw it. And you asked me, you asked me in the holding cell. And as you're asking me this, as, you're, as we're having conversations, I'm like, is, is this all being recorded? You're like, no. And you said, why did you do it now? And this, and this stuck with you. Oh, dude, man, I'm telling you right now that your answer literally hit it. It drove it all home. I looked at you and I said, dude, why'd you do it? Why now? And I'll never forget, you looked up at me and you were beaten down. You're bleeding on the floor in front of me. And I remember what you said. You said, <clears throat> I can't put my head on a pillow one more night knowing that he's going to do this to another little boy. And a man, it was like, it, it, it was like a bolt of lightning hit me. I was like, I got get it. it. I got it, dude. Yeah. I get it, man. I mean, I can't condone it, but I get it. Right. I'm <laughs> I totally get it. And you know, for everybody that's listening to this, 
there's going to be, I hope there's the overwhelming majority of people that are listening to this go, are driving in their car right now, maybe listening going, I get it too. Right. Uh, maybe it wasn't the right thing to do. It's, you know, not the morally right thing to do, but I, listen, man, I get it. Seven years old, 40, what were you, 48? 46. 46, you know, all those years. A, a life that should have been full of any possibility whatsoever was wasted yeah. up to that. And you know, I, and hey, I I, did I have a lot of fun at times? I'll lead a crazy off the charts life? Yes. But in a lot of ways it was wasted. Yeah. And, and you know, so uh, I opened up to you, you know, and said that to you. Oh, yeah, that, would, that hit home, man. It and, really did. Yeah. It was pretty... I walked out of there. I told you again. Don't say, don't say anything. It's it, piss everybody off. And then you said, you said to me, "Look, bro, you know, you're going to get interrogated. My own detectives are going to interrogate you with, with detectives from the prosecutor's office. You're in a lot of trouble. You're in deep shit. You got to keep your mouth shut. Exercise your Fifth Amendment right." And you know, I told you that 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 statement when you asked why now, and I said I couldn't lay my head on the pillow another night and that never showed up in my discovery which means you kept that to yourself yeah you 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 didn't have to feel the need to sink my ship any further you knew i was in trouble and and something the decency in you was like i'm i'm gonna do what's within my boundaries to do to help this dude you know to not further bury him. And that was one of the things was, you know, keeping our conversation between us. Yeah. And, and you know, how many other cops do that? I don't know, you know, uh, you know, but you did that and it meant a lot. And, and then you said, you know, don't go into that interrogation room and open your mouth. You're, you're in deep trouble. Keep your mouth shut, exercise your fifth amendment rights. Yeah. And I did. And without me, and as, as you say, at that point, I was defeated. I was done. And I probably wouldn't have cared going into that other room. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. like, And I could have gone in there and, and just and said, fuck just it, I'm going to just tell you. Yeah, I'll give you soup, nuts, and bolts. Here, here you go. And uh, I just went in and said, I, I request a lawyer. And that was, that was the extent of the interview. And without me doing that, without you having put that into my brain right before I went in there... I could have sunk my ship for decades, if not life. You and you know? would, you would have, because they would have done what they do. And you know, but but at the same time, you know, from the investigative standpoint, I don't want anybody to think I shirked my responsibility because I had you. We had well, you, you. We yeah, knew it was you. And and, 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 and another thing, we'll figure the rest out. Yeah. Another thing you said to me was like, "Look, dude, we got you." And you said, "We're right now. We're working on a warrant for your house. We don't need." to go destroy your house. Your mother's up from Florida right now. She doesn't need the house destroyed. Do you want to tell me where the weapons are at? Or do you want us to have to tear the house up? Yeah. And I was like, I told you where they were at. You know, I was like, you know, whatever. Yeah. And when you think about that night, like I, I think back when you and I talk and we talk quite a bit, um, I think there was a, one of the first times we sat down, we were in a diner having breakfast. Do you remember this? And there were some people walked in and did a double take because <laughs> they knew who you were. They knew who I was. And they're like, what's going on? But let me tell a quick bit about the first time I saw you. Yeah. So we'll fast forward a little bit. You did five years. Yeah. I mean. Okay. Uh, and I want to I get to the number five. I want to have you explain the number five. But you did five. Yeah. So when you get out, you're working at a restaurant. 
and the restaurant happened to be on a lake. And I was out fishing one day, not knowing you were out, not knowing where you were. I knew you were out. I didn't, I wasn't thinking about it, but I hadn't seen you since that day in a jail cell. And um, five years later, the buddy of mine, who was also a trooper at the time, we're fishing. We're both retired from state police. We're fishing. And uh, we go over by this restaurant. I say, hey, dude, let's, let's tie up and go get some lunch, which is not unnormal. We did a lot at this place. So I walk in, and I know the girl behind the bar. And you walk behind me towards the kitchen. I just out of the corner of my eye, I see somebody move, and I glance, I turn, I look at you, and I'm like, now, here's the thing. I didn't recognize you right away. I, I recognized you, but I wasn't sure. Because the physical condition that you were in the last time I saw you, you were a train wreck. <laughs> Physically, I mean, you looked like you just got run over by a bus. Absolutely. And then I look at you now, and you know, you're in a gym, you're living healthy, you're not, you know, you're clean as clean and sober, and you're eating right, and you're. So I'm like, who is that dude? I said, hey, uh, who is that guy that just walked in the kitchen? And she, uh, she goes, uh, that's Clark Fredericks. And uh, I said, oh, are you kidding me? I go, man. I said, hey, would you do me a favor? Would you go in the kitchen and tell him there's a couple of guys from the state police here to see him? And she looked at me and she goes, uh, oh, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> we, we love Clark. <laughs> you can't do this. And I know her. So she's right. like, I said, no, no, listen, I, I want to just say hi to him. God, I haven't seen him. She walks in the kitchen. She comes out, and uh, she goes, he'll be right out. And you walked out with a big smile on your face, and uh, I think she told you who I was, right? And you're like, I haven't been meaning to talk to you. Yeah, I mean, from one of the things as I sat in a prison cell was I can't wait to meet Howie and to say thank you. And, and thank you for, for being a human to me. You know, just talking, helping me, not trying to bury me further. You know, and, and one, you know, j just an example, one thing at the barracks that happened, you know, when I ripped that tape off my hand and you saw my wound and you're like, we got to get you an ambulance. And I told you I was fading. And you went out and said to some of your fellow, you know, troopers, you know, like, we got to get Fredericks an ambulance. He's got a pretty ghastly wound. And some of the younger dudes said, fuck him. Let him fucking sit for a while. And you're like, no. We can't let them sit, but there are, there are dudes, you know, that have a different take on things, you know, and it's going to happen in any profession. It does. And in this line of work, you get guys that, uh, they, you, you can't help sometimes, but trying to get yourself emotionally detached from an event, from an incident. In other words, I have a job to do. I don't want to have feelings about any of this shit. I just want to go do this. This guy just killed somebody. We got him locked up. Let's process him, stick him in a county jail, and it's right. over. And we'll wait for the trial. And, you know, you kind of look like, dude, he's bleeding all over the floor. We actually have a legal obligation <laughs> to do the right thing here. So let's get him an ambulance and, and get him wrapped up. And, uh, so but, yeah, so, I mean, that's just one example of, of why, you know, I wanted to see you. And, and I was looking forward yeah. to meeting you. And, and uh, you know, we hugged. Yeah. And we, yeah. we high-fived. And, and the bartender. I'll say her name, Shannon. Shannon looked like, holy shit. Like, this is a bizarre <laughs> yeah, moment. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and from there, it just, you know, went, went to having a breakfast. Like, yeah. hey, do you mind yeah. getting together for a breakfast? Give me, give me your number. I'd love to sit down with you. 
and we did. Yep. And then it spiraled to another breakfast, to another meeting, another meeting, to I, I, I put together a, a charity event and I asked you to, to open up for me. And, and you agreed. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, just so they know, when you say opened up for it wasn't a stand up comedy, <laughs> it wasn't a concert. I asked you to introduce me. <laughs> we yeah, talked yeah. this story. Um, but yeah, anyway, so I'm arrested, Howie, and, and I'm facing life in prison. You know, that's a first degree murder charge. I sat for three and a half years in the county jail. And, uh, you know, early on, I wanted to kill myself. I spent four weeks in a suicide cell. You know, you talk about a miserable existence, you know, that's about as bad as it gets. And uh, they had me in the right spot, though, because I wanted to kill myself. I wanted to die. I wanted my life to be over. Doing life behind bars just didn't entice me, you know? Yeah. And one day in my cell, and, you you know, you got to understand that I wasn't a spiritual guy. I went through life angry at God. God didn't when I was crying out being raped, didn't come and strike Dennis Pegg dead. And as a little kid, I couldn't understand how a God could allow this to happen. And, and I went through life angry at God. And I had no relationship with God. And yet, when I was at my rock bottom, I wanted to die. It's not easy to kill yourself in jail. You know, they, they're, des yeah. they're designed yeah, they to They tend to make it hard. Um, yeah, you know, unless you're Epstein. <laughs> I was going to say, man. Then all of a sudden, it's, it? then all of a sudden it's easy I, somehow. You know, that was going through my head. And I'm like, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so I'm in my cell alone. You know, I'm in general population finally. You know, it's about six months in. And I, I want to die. And I, I call out to God. I say, God, you have to either help me kill myself or heal myself. I can't go on living another day feeling like this. And I had an internal voice twice in my life speak to me. And that was the first time. It's a voice loud and clear. My case was an international case. It was a nationwide case. And I got books sent to me from all over. Self-help, spiritual books, meditation books, yoga, uh, you name it. Books on mantra, books, the Bible, everything. And, and this voice said, you have to pick up one of these books and start reading. You have to do it. And I picked up the smallest book somebody had sent me, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And then there was a sentence that said, when you're faced with an intolerable situation that will not change, you must change yourself. Viktor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor who spent years in, in the camps. And that sentence just rang inside of me. It, it, it like turned a light switch on. And... To, to continue with the spiritual aspect of my case, my mother, early on, you know, in the in, you know, four to six month range of my incarceration came for a visit. And as she stood outside the jail, her minister walked out. He had been in to see somebody's son. And he saw my mother, he gave her a hug and he grabbed her by the shoulders and he said to her, Joan. I want you and your son to start praying on the number five as in a five-year sentence. My mother comes in for our visit, and she tells me this story. And I put my head in my hands, and I say, Mom, I'm facing life in prison for murder. Can you pick a number that's a little more realistic? <laughs> 
I go, a five just ain't going to happen. And she goes, son, I believe in God. I believe in miracles. I want you to believe in God. I want you to believe in miracles. I'm asking you this as your mother, please do this. And I couldn't turn my mother down. She was broken as I was at this point. And I said, all right, I'll start praying on the number five. And from that day forward, I prayed nonstop, Howie. I'd be in the day room where there's just loud insanity going on, the day room of the jail on the floor I'm on. And in my mind, I'm repeating a prayer. I'm repeating a mantra with the five in it. I, met, I, I, I read book after book on meditation. I'd go to my cell and practice meditation, and I'd put a five into my meditation. So all day long, I got this five going, not knowing how it would ever possibly happen. Your, your listeners have to understand that I'm being held in the county jail for murder where the guy I murdered spent his 25-year career working as a lieutenant in that jail. He was a lieutenant in the county jail. So you talk about having the odds stacked against you. Somebody out there listening to this who's, who's going through something in life, who's facing obstacles and hurdles and like doesn't know how they're possibly going to get over them. Well, I'm, I'm held for murder in the jail where the guy I murdered worked his career. It can't get more dire than that. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And we put in for a change of venue early on in my case, and the judge shot it down, saying, I see no conflict of interest. And I'm like, I said to my defense attorney, that's the nail in the coffin there. It's over. So fast forward three and a half years I spent in the county jail. There's no such thing as a speedy trial, especially when it comes to a murder case. And the prosecutor's office uh, offered me a plea deal to second-degree manslaughter. And now, instead of facing decades behind bars, I already had three and a half years in, I was facing years behind bars. Second-degree manslaughter carries five to ten. And I was determined up to that point to take my case to trial because I wanted, I wanted everybody to know what an animal this guy was. But now that, that plea changed my, my thinking, and I accepted it. I went before the judge, and the judge, judges don't like to be ever on the low end of a sentence. They normally like to go in the middle to the up, especially on a murder case. And yet this judge started his speech, and he apologized to me for what happened to me as a young boy. He said to me, I'm tempted to liberate you right here and now. My lawyer had put in for lesser charges. If your mitigating factors outweigh your aggravating factors, you can put in for a lesser sentence. I'd never been arrested, even though I led this crazy life. So we put in for my, my charges to be downgraded to third degree. And if the judge had gone with it, I could have walked out right then because I had enough time in. So he said, I'm tempted to liberate you right now. But in the end, he gave me the minimum, which is in itself an amazing feat. I got a five-year sentence. And he apologized for having to send me to prison for a single day. So just like you're doing these things, here's this guy on the record apologizing for sending me to prison. And it dawned on me as I sat at the table with my lawyer that I just got the five that I had scoffed at my mother 
for insisting that I pray for. And I looked over my shoulder. She was sitting in the front row right over my shoulder. And I looked at her. She had tears rolling down her cheeks, and I had tears rolling down my cheeks. And we just nodded and smiled at each other. Yeah. And, you know, it's simply amazing that it, that that's the sentence I got. I remember the prosecutor, one of the things he said when he was interviewed, he said, you know, I have to understand we had to try Clark Fredericks, but we also had to try Dennis Pegg in this. Yeah. You know, which was a powerful statement from a prosecuting attorney, and it was good. And I know him, and he, uh, I have to say, this whole thing, I think they did a really, you know, stand-up job. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they made tough decisions. And, uh, and, and, and it came through. What I want to, I want to talk to you about is, um, now let's talk about today. Um, you know, you had a shirt that you wore it said suffering unleashes greatness, right? Um, your message today, and this is really why this episode I think comes full circle. I mean, your crazy life in the beginning is just mind blowing. The, the act of that night, the, the trial, the, the, the time that you got, the time that you served. You came out on the other side. I, I know this, the fact, I'm not asking you, you're a better person. Uh, you got your, your, your act together and you're doing some things now that are completely selfless. You are helping other people. I've witnessed this. I've seen people come to you and talk to you. It's not often you'll see a guy that's a victim of something like this so free. And I don't mean free from prison. I mean free from the demons inside. The freedom, the freedom that lets you get up in front of people and share your story. Share what some people would consider, and you considered at one point, embarrassing. Uh, and you're helping. And you're helping people. You're saving their lives, man. Because some of these people will kill themselves. And you're, you've, I just want to go over a few things that you've done that I, I think. You've talked a little bit about your faith. Uh, and I think it's faith... I'm one of these people that believes, <clears throat> I believe in God. Uh, I've been, I was raised, born and raised Catholic. But I, I believe that when you use your faith to guide your life, it, it's, it can be a very powerful thing. What we see in some parts of the world is where people let that religion run every aspect of their life, including their laws, and it becomes a disaster. But right. you used, you found your faith in this, and it has helped you quite a bit. One of the things you've done is you wrote a book, and your book is called My Journey from Darkness to Light, which is in the works now to be published, which I think is fantastic. I mean, the story is amazing. I think one of the most amazing things, though, that you did, and I'm going to ask you to talk about it, is going down and testifying in front of the House Judicial Committee in the state of New Jersey to change the statute of limitations. Go ahead and explain that. Yeah. I mean, I, I went and saw a law firm. I, 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 you know, from, from Googling, uh, Boy Scout lawsuits in New Jersey, um, a case came up in the, the County next to ours that had just recently happened. And three boys filed the lawsuit against their, their, their Boy Scout leader. And it listed the law firm and the, and the lawyer specifically who was handling the case. And I called the guy up. And I went to Newark and met in his office and he read me the law, how it currently was written. And he said, you have no case. You, you, the old law from the time you turned 18, you had two years to file a lawsuit or 
two years from the time of awareness that what happened to you is adversely affecting your life. That second part is just ridiculous. Legal, legal mumbo jumbo for you're screwed. Don't even bother. Yeah. So he said, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to say you didn't have awareness when you went and murdered the guy. He goes, so your two years is up. He said, it may be healthy for you to get involved with other advocates who are working to change the law. They've been working for over 15 years to get a new law in New Jersey. They haven't gotten anywhere yet. Maybe your story can have an impact and get change. He goes, I have the name of, of some of the advocates. Uh, you know, I've met with them. And, and he set up a meeting in his office a month later for me to meet one of the advocates. And I listened to this guy, Fred Marigliano, and I, I decided to join on and, and help to get change. And unbeknownst to me is I had a, a distant cousin that I hadn't seen in years who was married to one of the top lobbyists in the state. And from posting on Facebook about, you know, trying, I'm working on changing the law, she told her husband, and her husband reached out to me and, and said, you know, I'd be more than willing to help you out pro bono, set up meetings, do whatever I can to, to help you along. And, you know, I'm, we met with senators and assemblymen. I met with uh, the lawyer representing the Camden Diocese of the Catholic Church, and it was, you know, I went from having prison food, Howie, being surrounded by inmates with mental disease and disorders to having power lunches in nice restaurants with lobbyists and assemblymen and meeting senators in their office. And I shared my story. And my story carries some oomph when they hear it. And I said, we can't have, I understand what I did was wrong. You know, I don't advocate for, for what I did. And I said, we can't have a bunch of Clarks running around killing their abusers because there's no avenue for, for civil recourse. That's, uh, that's a powerful line right there. Yeah. And I, I got through to some of them. And less than two years after becoming an advocate, after the guys had worked, guys and girls, for 15 years on this law, I was in Trenton to testify before the House Judicial Committee about what happened to me and how now the, the House Judicial Committee is made up of all these senators, you know, and they heard my powerful story. And two weeks after that hearing, um, I'm in Trenton for the final vote on the law, which passed unanimously, and we had got a new law. And the new law gives you up to age 55 to come forward instead of 18 where you had two years you you have up until age 55 to file a lawsuit and there's also a two-year open window that started december 1st of last year where anyone no matter how old they are how old their cases can come forward and file a lawsuit it's it's the best law in the country so we went from having the worst law to now the best law yeah which is amazing it is amazing and it's amazing because how much do we see now within, you know, in Washington with the Senate and Congress and nothing gets done, right? That they could get together and, and listen to a story like this and say, you know what, we got to do something. And that's a quantum leap, by the way, from 18 to 55, you said, or 50? 55. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's a big, big jump. It's the right thing to do. 
And I think one of the things that's really important to, uh, that I want to say, and then I want, we're going to wrap it up with you saying your opinion on this is, you know, it's easy for me to tell people that I didn't, none of these things happened to me. I was not a victim of this. I was in law enforcement. I've seen it many times. So it does affect me. You, you talked about PTSD. We do a whole talk on PTSD and, and as homicide investigators, you see it over and over and over. It makes us cold, calloused. Uh, we disengage. There's a whole litany of probably psychological terms I could use how screwed up we get over the years. Right. But one of the things that I can tell you, especially in this day and age where everybody's so down on law enforcement is, look, we want to stop this. This is the kind of thing that we go after, but we need your help. We need the victims to speak. It's hard. I know it's hard, but it's... Can I, can I just stop you there? Do you th I mean, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Do you think it's a pleasure to come here and say, I had a grown man perform oral sex on me? No, nah, I mean, I can't even imagine. Do you think it's, it's pleasant for me to say, I was in a bear hug? By a 265-pound lieutenant who anally raped me. No, but I'm putting it out there to break that, that barrier that holds all other victims hostage. It's, it's the, the fear of, I, I have to protect the secret. Protecting that secret destroyed my life. Yeah. And I hear from these people. The, the people who are in rehabs, two-thirds have been abused as, as children. What's that line you told me about silence? Silence is your, is your, is your biggest enemy. It really is. You know? So I, I, I'm sharing my, my dirt. I don't hide from anything. I don't hide from the murder. I don't hide from the abuse. I'm being as transparent as I can to help the next person say like, all right, well, he's putting all his crap out there and his life is going great. All right. So it's not as scary as I thought. He's putting his crap out there about the sexual abuse he suffered, and people are reaching out to him with nothing but congratulations. So what am I so afraid of? You know, so I just keep doing it, and it just opens people up to talk about it. Dude, I got to be honest with you, man. I am uh, I'm unbelievably proud of what you've done since the whole event and how you've turned your life around and what you're doing now. I mean, it's it's... It is inspiring. I don't give a shit what your job is, you know, what, what you do for a living and what you think you, you, you've seen or done. You hear your story and you, you say, man, I can't believe he's alive. But to see what you've done, how much you've reached out for other people is, uh, is freaking awesome. It really is. And, and I just, you know, I want to, uh, I'm in my 50s now. You know, I'm 54 years old and I feel life is just starting, Howie. Mm. You know, so the, it's the second half, man. Yeah. So that person in their 20s, 30s, 40s, who's, who's still that train wreck that I was. Don't give up. It's, yeah, it's not over. It, life, you never know where life will take you. Do not give up. Do not put that shotgun in your mouth. Do not tie that rope around your neck. Yeah. Oh, man, I hear you, dude. It's, uh, you know, the couple of things I always wanted to think about afterwards, and me and you spoke about this real quick. You, you think about, let's think, let's talk for a second about Dennis Pegg, you know, um, he didn't know where his life was going to end up or when it was going to end or how it was going to end, but you can't, you can't live that life and expect to ride off into the sunset. Somebody is going to call you on it, whether it 
this way or, uh, you know, an arrest or whatever it may be. And one of the things I always, and we didn't talk about in this yet, but I always wondered, people like him, how do they just switch gears and go back? In other words, the event happens, this event, hundreds of other kids, maybe 50, 20, whatever it may be. How do they just hit the clutch, shift gears, and go has the rest of their afternoon doing whatever it was they're doing after they do something like that? And my point to people is there are predators out there. They're still there. They live among us. If you are not a victim and you know of victims, reach out and help people. Reach out and understand that these people are there. It may be a sickness in their head that makes them do this. It may be an evil that makes them do this. But they, they do exist, and we have to look out for each other, and uh, uh, you know we have to, we have to keep, keep the eye on that and, and understand that that never is going to go away. We just have to deal with it, and we have to help one another get through it. Yeah, one, you know, one thing you and I have spoke about, and we'll never get the answer from Dennis Pegg, you know, but is it exactly that? Like, how does he rape a young boy and then go home and go to bed that or night? Or go to work or whatever. Or does he go home and crack a beer and just, like, grin to himself? Does he or does go he go home? home and sit and cry? Right. Thinking, does he say, I, what am I, I can't doing? believe I can't control this urge? Yeah, yeah. I, I, That's I an, it's an important part, man, because, you know, it's not... Uh, Look, it's if you ask any kind of medical professional, especially a mental health professional, there's another side to that with him. And 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 is he a victim of his own mental illness? Is he a victim of of whatever, or is he just that much of an evil predator? I, I tend to think it's it's a it's a mental illness. And you and you say, is he suffering in his head? I mean, in a way, in the end of this, has he been put out of misery? I know that sounds harsh, but how do you keep that going? You can't just keep that going and then function in society, man. They're suffering, these people. And, uh, but, I mean, but it I is mean, what it is. I, you know, I don't know if you guys, did you find bottles of Xanax? How, did, how does he calm himself? How does he sleep at night? Is he tell you, got ambient everywhere. Like, yeah. I don't know how. Or is he just... Or is that the drug? Or, yeah. Or is he that sociopathic where he can just turn it on and off? Yeah, maybe. Boom. Because when I... He was this outgoing gregarious, fun-loving guy. But when he would get me to abuse me, he, tur- he turned. His eyes became black, became pinpoint. You want to talk about shark eyes? He had shark eyes. And focused on the prey. And he turned. He, so maybe, you know, I... I don't know. I don't know either. And it's something, you know, to, to ask... If you can get an interview with a serial pedophile, you know, sit, see how they can turn it on and off. See how they can function. In right. Life. Well, I, I, you know, like um, for those of you out there that are listening to this, I, I would strongly urge you to look at Clark's story. I mean, you just heard it here, but there are some things that he's done since then. He's been on Oxygen Network um, on a show called Killer Motive where he gave a story. He was on uh, ABC with Tamron Hall. Uh, the, the episode was what revenge looks like. He's been on a few other things, CBS, ABC, NBC news, local news here in New Jersey. There's a lot of it out there to see. I'm looking forward to your book, man. My journey from darkness to light. I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm excited to see that. I've got a chance to read a snippet of it. And I was pretty impressed at how it, how it opened up, man. I, I'll tell you what, I I'm here to tell you that, uh, I wish you all the success in the world. I am 
I am the one of the guys that put you in prison. But I'm proud to call you my friend, man. You came a long way, dude. <laughs> I mean, a long way. And a lot of people out there that are suffering from similar things, they need to look at your story and say, I can do this. And I'm going to give them your website. Yeah. www.clarkfredericks.com. Check it out. He's on Facebook. Uh, he's on uh, the his website here. Reach out to him. He's uh, he's I know Instagram, he t- LinkedIn, Twitter, all of them. Yeah, you know uh, Facebook and Instagram. I do most of my posts. But they, you know, if somebody goes to my website, they can uh, leave me a private message yeah. at the bottom, and I'll re- I respond to everybody. Yeah, reach out to him. Uh, if 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 a law enforcement officer has questions, I, I'm I'm free to answer anything. Yeah, and uh, you know. Uh, I'll be posting, you know, when when my book will come out, um, and also uh, hopefully once this uh, pandemic's over, uh, you and I will be back speaking again, yep. and doing some joint speeches, and uh, it'll be uh, it'll be listed on the website when we're going to speak again. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, man. It's about helping people. You know, one 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 last thing, Howie, which you know, to 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 go back to the law enforcement angle is, is from the time of my arrest, law enforcement really rallied behind me which, you know, all facets. And because law enforcement did their job right, I was able to get the sentence I got. Had they not investigated Dennis Pegg with his behavior and just simply investigated me with what I did, I could have got life in prison. Sure. But law enforcement did their job and it, and it worked wonders for, for my life. Before this pandemic hit, just to show you how law enforcement has been treating me, I had three law enforcement speeches lined up. One was for the women of law enforcement in New Jersey. They asked me to come speak. The, 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 the topic this year was going to be the warrior mindset. And they said, if anybody has a warrior mindset, it's you. I was going to speak at the forensic lab uh, annual conference for the state police the state police who arrested me guns drawn on my front lawn now want me to go be their 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 keynote speaker for their crime lab conference and after my uh, after my documentary aired i got contacted by the state of pennsylvania department of probation who has an annual conference out at state college pa where penn state is and they asked me to be their key- keynote speaker. So I had all three of these events lined up because law enforcement has rallied behind me. Unfortunately, they all got canceled, but you know, next year is rapidly approaching, and uh, I-, I plan on doing them all next year. Good deal. It's amazing. Good deal. Listen, man, thanks for coming in. I, uh, I know we talked about doing this, and I really appreciate you setting the time aside. I hope we got through to some people. And uh, I tell everybody again, man, If you need help, reach out. There is help there, and you can change it around. Thanks, bud. Awesome. Thank you, Howie.